What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Following the murder of George Floyd by then Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in 2020, the country erupted in protest and rebellions. The same was true for the state of Colorado and the cities of Denver and Colorado Springs, where Black Lives Matter members began challenging the status quo of policing and building a grassroots movement to eliminate state violence. That's when the FBI thought it would be a good idea to hire a white convicted felon to infiltrate their movement. Now, the ACLU is taking them to court during us to discuss are Trevor Aronson, a journalist and the author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. He is a contributing writer for The Intercept and the host of a podcast which documented the FBI's role in Colorado's 2020 protest movement called Alphabet Boys. Good morning, Trevor. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back to the show. We are also joined by Jacqueline Armendares Unsueta, who also goes by Jax, one of the plaintiffs in an ACLU lawsuit that targets the city of Colorado Springs, members of the Colorado Springs Police Department, and the FBI for aggressive overreach and repression during the 2020 protest movement. Good morning, Jax. Good morning, Pat. Thank you so much for your attention to this case. Really glad to have you all on the show. And Tim McDonald is the legal director of the ACLU of Colorado and the lead attorney for the lawsuit that we will be discussing today. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Kat. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here, Trevor. I'm going to start with you. You were the journalist who initially broke this story. How did the FBI come to set its sights on Colorado during the summer of 2020? Sure. Yeah, I, I can give kind of the broader context, and, and Jackson and yes, Tim please. can certainly talk more about the ACLU case. You know, in, yep. in the summer of 2020, you know, Denver saw a lot of demonstrations, as other cities did. But an informant named Mickey Windecker, who was a, a violent felon, had approached the FBI and said he had unique information about um, demonstrators, specifically in Denver. And the information he provided to the FBI, according to internal reports, was all largely First Amendment protected activity. It was speech. It was things that demonstrators had said that were incendiary, but nonetheless, you know, free speech rights. And the FBI, using a power, post-911 power called an assessment, then launched an undercover investigation of the demonstrators in Denver. Mickey, um, being paid as an informant for the FBI, went in as a demonstrator, rose into a leadership role after accusing real leaders of the movement of being um, informants themselves and then encouraged violence at a number of demonstrations in late August of that summer. Mickey also tried unsuccessfully to entrap two black activists in a plot, a supposed plot to assassinate the state's attorney general, which ultimately went nowhere. At the same time, and this is where it's relevant to the ACLU case, uh, Mickey had provided information to the FBI about activists in Colorado Springs as well. And that inspired the FBI to launch a separate investigation in Colorado Springs using an undercover detective named April Rogers, who posed as an activist and volunteered um, at a, an umbrella organization called the Chinook Center and, you know, was, was you know, providing information back to the FBI and to the Colorado Springs Police Department as part of a joint terrorism task force investigation, essentially allowing federal and state police to uh, build dossiers on activists who were not suspected of committing crimes, for which there was no reasonable suspicion of crime, criminal activity. And yet she was then providing that information and building these dossiers. And just as Mickey was doing in Denver, um, was attempting to entrap activists in um, crimes, in, in her case, in, in gun-running conspiracies. Um, and as part of that, and this is where it's relevant to the ACLU case that Jackson Tim can talk about, the, the Colorado Springs Police Department working 
with the FBI, pursued a number of um, dragnet surveillance warrants or, or search warrants, trying to, um, you know, collect information on the group's activities. April Rogers was or is a, a police officer. Before I move on to uh, you, Jax, um, Trevor, say a little bit more about what we know about Mickey Windecker and his record and also what the FBI said about why Mickey came to them. Yeah, so Mickey's uh, Mickey has a long, long criminal rap sheet, uh, arrests in at least four states. He was convicted of misdemeanor sexual assault, and he uh, was also convicted and went to prison for felony menacing with a weapon. The, the FBI records show that his work with the police dates back to at least the early 2000s when he was imprisoned for the felony menacing case, um, during which Mickey, while in prison, was approached for a murder for hire. And instead of getting involved in that plot, became a witness against the two people who had tried to hire him. And that's the earliest record we have of Mickey cooperating with police. But over the, the following two decades leading up to the summer of 2020, Mickey clearly learned that a way you can make money um, as a criminal is, is to be an informant, to provide information to police. And so the FBI had a record of this when he approached them about racial justice demonstrators that summer, there was a clear record that this was a man who was motivated by money. And yet what the FBI claimed in its, its official records is that Mickey's motivation for coming forward was had nothing to do with money, but in fact was out of some you know duty to protect the country, that he believed these racial justice demonstrators were potentially extremists and he was concerned that they would be terrorists of some sort. And it's important to to, to recognize that the FBI investigated these racial justice demonstrators under the, te under the domestic terrorism rubric. Um, going back to 2017, the FBI had identified a supposed domestic terrorism ideology called black identity extremism, which was you know, basically a catch-all label for any black activist in the United States. And so under that rubric, the FBI investigated these demonstrators um, in, in Denver and later in Colorado Springs um, as domestic terrorism investigations using some of the powers, including the assessment, which allowed them to the open the investigation without reasonable uh, suspicion or probable cause, um, you know, using a, a post 9-11 power that was meant to prevent or allow law enforcement to quickly investigate uh, per perceptive security threats, which in this case, the FBI viewed the demonstrators not as, you know, peaceful demonstrators, but as potential extremists. Last question for you for now, Trevor. How much did the FBI pay Mr. Windecker for his services here? So we, our, our records are limited. Uh, we do know that Mike, Mickey Windecker worked from May through at least July of the following year, 2021. Our records are limited to the summer. And that summer, from May to August, he was paid approximately $20,000, the records show. If you extrapolate from that, you know it's not unreasonable to assume he made about six figures working that entire year. Uh, but what we can say definitively is that he was paid about $20,000 um, know, know, during that three-month summer period from May uh, through August. And I think it's important to point out that informants are often motivated by money. And a, and a problem with the FBI's use of informants in other cases, and I think including this one, is that informants know that they can't just go and investigate people and come back and say, hey, I didn't find anything, you know, and still get paid. So there is a direct financial incentive for them to encourage criminal activity and even set up plots in order to continue getting paid. And, and that's what we saw in Denver with Mickey's encouragement of violence at demonstrations, as well as his very over-the-top attempts to entrap uh, two black activists in a very kind of far-fetched conspiracy to assassinate the state's attorney general. 
All right, Jax, I want to bring you into the conversation. How long have you been an activist and an organizer, and what type of organizing were y'all doing in 2020? Well, in general, I've been a community organizer since at least 2012. I've been in Colorado since 2016 and started organizing here then. And um, interestingly, I, I think it's important to point out that my co-plaintiff Chinook Center, I, I actually wasn't very directly involved with them prior to um, the housing rights march that's at the center of this case. And it, I... I would really say I was collateral damage in this overreach from both the federal authorities and the Colorado Springs Police Department. And ultimately what happened is that they essentially tried to criminalize us for saying things like Black Lives Matter, white supremacy is domestic terrorism, and housing is a human right. And that's why this case is so important. It's out of love for my community. It's about protecting my community and holding the police for uh, accountable for their wrongdoings and, and violating our constitutional rights. So talk to us about that housing rights march. What, what took place that day and, and what are the feds saying? Certainly. Um, so it's important to note that July 31, 2021, it was a confluence of events. It was the end of the federal evictions moratorium, and that's actually particularly why I was there that day. At the time, I was a U.S. Senate staffer, and we were actually working on housing policy, so I felt it was critical to show up in my community and understand what people are saying, and I do believe that housing is a human right, so I was wearing one of those red shirts that we had that, that said that, um, which the police clearly took great animosity towards, and also it was the city's sesquicentennial that day, and furthermore, the, or, the march had been organized by a number of different groups. It just so happened that Chinook one of the most prominent, one of the most active, um, was kind of a lead in the circumstance. And it was, it started out with what we do in this community, which is mutual aid. We were at a park down the street handing out, um, food and other essential items to our unhoused neighbors. And the police, we knew, we saw them. They were already watching us. So from the get-go, it was incredibly intimidating. And the targeting, the surveillance, you know, there was already a hint of it. We just didn't have any idea to what extent. And and so as we started the march, which was intended to pass by the sesquicentennial celebration, um, the, the police were clearly amped up. And the energy um, was very, very intense. And then as we made our way kind of up this hill, I was on a bike, so I kind of charged the hill and got in front of people. And um, I turned around, and suddenly I see just CSPD officers completely dogpiled. I couldn't even see anyone else. And, you know, in a split second to me, I remember thinking, is this another I can't breathe moment because of, frankly, how violent it was. And so in a split-second decision, you know, I'm turning around. I see another um, officer, full riot gear, charging the crowd and feeling unsafe, you know, thinking, is he coming for me? Um, dropped my bike, and, you know, he completely avoided it, never touched him. Um, but CFP, he used that to falsely accuse me of attempted aggravated assault on an officer, a second-degree felony. And that's what led them to be able to completely violate my right to privacy 
and and really my right to free speech. They they were able to secure these incredibly invasive um, dragnet search warrants for all my electronic devices, which essentially had the effect of leaving me in a total blackout. And so to me, from day one, I knew what happened to me was wrong. And the message was also very clear from CSPD, which was essentially, you know, shut down, sit up, little girl, or sit down, little girl, and, and know your place. Um, the, the chilling effect intent was very clear to me from the get-go. And so I'm incredibly grateful um, for Trevor's excellent reporting for ACLU Colorado taking this case, but because this, this cannot persist in Colorado. Last question for you for now, Jax. Can you talk about your arrest and how you were treated? Certainly. I mean, in in total, this has become from one of the worst moments of my life to, to an incredibly important one. And frankly, I've never been the same since then. It was traumatizing to have, you know, multiple unmarked um, officer vehicles come up to my home to essentially felt what was like abducting me. Some of them, I guess, undercover and wearing face masks um, because of, you know, the nature of the investigation since it was a joint terrorism task force um, oriented. And, you know, I was left completely paranoid. Um, my family realized that, uh, helped me realize that I needed to seek um, assistance with symptoms of PTSD after that experience. You know, I spent, um, I had to replace my electronic devices. They didn't release those to me until much, much further um, had I spent time in the legal system. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it's it, my story is not unique in that when cops mess up like this, it affects entire communities. And one thing that's incredibly important to us right now, or a couple of things, is that we really believe that this case is evidence that our Attorney General Phil Weiser should use the SB 217 law passed during Black Lives Matter summer, uh, uh, you know, a police accountability law hailed across the nation to initiate a pattern and practice investigation of the Colorado Springs Police Department. And even right now, we're still organizing to bring accountability because uh, city leaders are asking for more taxpayer money for a mini cop city here. While this case is going on, while it's clear there's evidence that they violate people's constitutional rights, so I was left, and our community is left with so much more work to do. Well, you segued to something I was going to ask you later, but so you are still organizing. The chill factor didn't work Absolutely. on you. You know, I, right I would have to say... It would be a lie if we didn't say we weren't afraid, um, but even more so, I want to point out that most recently we experienced four years since CSBD shot and killed a 19-year-old black man in the back as he ran away, Devon Bailey, and he's the reason that we started organizing, so absolutely we remain committed and we will continue to push forward for accountability and ultimately safety of our community. Happy to hear it. Tim, I'm going to bring you into the conversation now. How'd the ACLU get involved? Um, so the ACLU got involved uh, after hearing about this, uh, the, the search warrants uh, and the infiltration uh, of, of the Chinook Center and the Umbrella uh, other organizations. And when we learned about these warrants, we were deeply concerned uh, that this is a practice 
the, the search warrants, they seized Jax's uh, cell phones, her computers, her hard drive that she'd been using, uh, that she'd had in her middle school years, uh, and searched those uh, devices uh, in, in incredibly invasive, unconstitutional searches. And we at the ACLU were deeply concerned about the infiltration, the surveillance, the spying, uh, and the search warrants. Walk us through the justification the feds and the cops are using. Um, this is about speech and doesn't seem that they're denying it. Is, is, is that correct? And is that a justification you think is going to hold up in court? Uh, so the, the justification that the, the Colorado Springs Police Department gave for the search warrants was that people use their phones to send messages and take pictures. Uh, and, and if that justification... Uh, survive scrutiny, which we do not think it should. We don't think it will. But if it did survive scrutiny, that means everyone uh, who uses a cell phone uh, likely uses it to take pictures and send messages. Uh, and if the, if the police can seize uh, Jax's phones and devices and computers, they could do it to anyone. And, and that's, uh, that should be deeply concerning. Uh, we don't think it uh, is it, is permissible. We think it violates the Fourth Amendment uh, and the First Amendment, and, and that's what we hope to show in this lawsuit. In addition to the lawsuit saying that the First and Fourth Amendments were, violate, were violated, is there anything else that the lawsuit alleges? Uh, I mean, the, the, the lawsuit tells the story uh, of the infiltration. Um, we think it violates not just the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment, but also uh, the, the statute that Jax mentioned that was passed during the Black Lives uh, Matter summer, uh, a state law as well as the state constitution that also protects uh, free expression uh, and, and requires specificity when you get a warrant. The police can't just uh, seize devices or go into someone's home uh, looking willy-nilly through personal effects and personal papers and particularly in the age we live in today where all of the uh, private information that uh, we hold on our phone, um, that's protected in by the Fourth Amendment, by the First Amendment, and by the Colorado State Constitution. Tim, if you win the lawsuit, what happens? What changes? Well, w we, we hope that this sends a message to the, the city of Colorado Springs, uh, as well as the FBI, that you cannot uh, silence your critics. Uh, you cannot get these types of dragnet search warrants. Uh, and, and people are allowed to go out in the street and raise their voice and, uh, as Jack said, argue uh, that housing is a human right and the, and the police can't and shouldn't retaliate against them. Jax, I want to bring you back into the conversation, talk a little bit more about personal impact. You mentioned that you were working for a congressman at the time. How was your job impacted by this? Yeah, I mean, I was put on paid leave, to which I'm grateful. I think the office did, you know, the best they could in a really terrible situation. I mean, I think CSPD's intent was, here's the thing that we know about the prison industrial complex and the legal system is that... Even the accusation 
was going to put a red letter mark on me potentially for the rest of my life. And so that's the power dynamic that we as organizers are constantly struggling under. And so, you know, I'm grateful to that office for, I think, supporting me the best that they could and just ethically not being able to get involved since it was a legal system matter, um, which is just a standard practice, you know. And so I'm, I'm proud to have served in the U.S. Senate. I've served the city of Colorado Springs. I've been a, a city employee. Um, I've, I've been a journalist serving my community. Um, and now I'm in the nonprofit social work sector. And so I'm proud to say that as difficult as it was, I mean, this is a process two years coming in which I've done my best to to heal and channel my trauma, frankly, um, into positive work for my community. And this ACLU case is a huge moment for me personally, but also my community because many people have reached out to me and, you know, obviously I'm close with my fellow organizers that this is monumental for them too. We've been working for years for police accountability and that is some of the material change we hope to bring to our community with this case, including that pattern and practice investigation from the Colorado Attorney General's office we hope to see. Trevor Aronson, there were rebellions happening all over the country. Why target Colorado of all places, do you think? I, th I think it's important to, to, to point out that it's not unreasonable to assume that what happened in Colorado happened in other places around the country. Um, what we know is that this is the first documented case of it happening is the one in Colorado, but does not mean it's exclusive to Colorado. Um, but I think there are, there are a couple of things that are worth noting. One is that, you know, nationally in the summer of 2020, there was a, there was a development of a new program that the FBI was using called social media exploitation in which they were monitoring um, racial justice activists that summer, um, monitoring things like Twitter accounts, uh, Facebook event pages, and then building reports on who would be attending those events. And the documents we have uh, from FOIA litigation show that this was happening in cities including Seattle, in Washington, D.C., as well as in places like Denver. And so, you know, it's not unreasonable to believe that cases like Mickey's and what happened in Colorado Springs were happening elsewhere. We just haven't been able to get access to those documents. But there, we do have access to documents that show that this was a national concerted effort to monitor racial justice activists that summer. Um, the other thing worth noting, I, I think, is that, you know, Denver was a particularly um, active area during the summer of 2020. You know, this this was a community that was responding to the death of Elijah McClain the year before. And prior to George mm -hmm. Floyd's murder, there were um, significant demonstrations in Denver, just as there were in Colorado Springs, as Jack's mentioned, following the, the murder of um, Devon Bailey. And so, you know, in addition to kind of a national push, you know, Denver and the Colorado Springs area were two cities that were quite active that summer. And I think coupled with, you know, social media exploitation, a perception by the FBI that, um, you know, this kind of activity by by black Americans is, you know, what they termed black identity extremism. I think it just created this perfect storm that, you know, these racial justice groups were investigated as if they were extremists or domestic terrorists. And, and I think an important takeaway from this is that, you know, 
two decades ago when you know, enormous powers were granted to federal law enforcement in the war on terror in the post 9-11 era. There were critics saying, you know, wait until the war on terror wanes and these powers are used against people who aren't terrorists. And I think what you see in Colorado is an example of this, that the, the investigative powers that were used were the type of investigative powers that were granted to federal law enforcement agencies in the, in the hunt for the Osama bin Ladens of the world. And now that we live in an age of the war on terror waning, these powers still exist within federal law enforcement, and we're seeing them directed toward people um, who's, you know, who were never intended to be um, you know, targeted by these sorts of invasive powers. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>